The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. Today's sermon is pre-recorded. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the love of the Therein day and night, and he shall be like a tree planted by the streams of living water that yields its fruit in its own season, and its leaves shall not ever wither. does, he prospers in all that he does. But the wicked are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore they shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will be like a tree planted by the streams of living water that yields its fruit in its own season and its leaf shall not ever wither in all that he does in all that he does prospers in all that he does. I don't come with any isms. I just come with a cross. And I pray tonight that as we open the word, you'll speak very clearly to us and that we can understand what the Spirit is saying to the church. That you would quicken us by the power of your Spirit, enlightening our hearts and our minds. For, Lord, we've come because the great desire of our heart is to be filled with your presence Lord, I love you. I love you, Jesus. Would you come now and meet us? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. He came by night. He wanted an opportunity to talk with this new teacher who was taking the Jewish people by storm. He had to be very careful because of his political position and his political power. He did not want to be branded as a follower of this 
new teacher until he knew more about him. It's wise to approach Jesus with caution. For he says, if you would follow me, take up your cross and, and follow me. And he was on his way to Golgotha. He was on his way to be crucified. So Nicodemus was wise to be careful and cautious. He opens the conversation with Jesus in John, the third chapter, by saying, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miracle and the signs you are doing if God were not with him. He knew Jesus was not a rabbi. He was obviously patronizing Jesus. He was trying to make an approach. Jesus does not bite on this approach of Nicodemus's. Instead, in reply, in verse 3, this is John 3, verse 3, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born from above. Nicodemus, how can a man be born when he's old? Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh. The Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. Now here's the problem we face. Most Christians today in America most evangelical Christians in America believe that they have been born again. They believe they are saved. They believe that at the cross, Jesus forgave them for all of their past, present, and future sins. And so we hear sermon after sermon in church after church proclaiming to God's people, you are saved. You are safe. God loves you unconditionally. The level of interest in hearing the word of God is in direct proportion to the concern you have about your salvation. If you have no concern about your salvation, why would you come and spend time here tonight? Unless religion, of course, is your hobby. And for many Christians, religion is their hobby of choice. The problem we face is that the life demonstration of most Christians in America does not reflect that they have entered into salvation, simply that they have entered into a denomination they have agreed to a certain set of beliefs, but the life practice continues to be one very much like the world. And so in the research that was done by Focus on the Family, they found there was no measurable difference in the life habits of evangelical Christians and those who called themselves pagans. They spent their money the same way. They went to the same places on vacation. They had the same goals and objectives. They watched the same shows on television. They did the same kind of American lifestyle, but they joined a church and were, quote, saved. But what were they saved from? If a man is drowning and he cries out as Peter did, Jesus, save me. Did Jesus say, why don't you, Peter, just go ahead and drown? And when I come back, I'll pull you up off the bottom and I'll take you to heaven with me. No, he reached out his hand and he pulled him up out. We know, okay, can we be very logical and use English for what it means? When we say we are saved, 
sozo in the Greek, it means that I have been taken out of a dire situation and I have been brought out of that and now my feet are planted on solid ground and I'm safe. So if I'm saved, what am I saved from? I want to propose to you that I am saved from my sin. But if I still walk in my sin, am I saved from it? No. I'm still doing the same old, same old. So to be saved, I need a Savior. So the gospel, what is it? It's the good news of redemption. God loves me. And so he poured out his heart for me on the cross. And he shed his blood on the cross in his son Jesus. He opened the way for me to be brought out of the kingdom of darkness and to be brought into the kingdom of light. He provided a means by which I could be transformed into a new creature. That the bondages of sin that have held me are broken. I said to a man today, I see I still need to pray for you. He said, yes, you do, Pastor. Because I'm still, and he named the sin. And I said, when are you going to give that sin up? He said, I'm trying, Pastor. I said, you can't try to leave sin. That isn't how we deal with sin. We are saved by Jesus out of our sin. It's a supernatural work of God that he performs for us, where he pulls us up out of that place from which we cannot rescue ourselves. And we are rescued by the merciful hand of Jesus as he draws us out of that thing. So to that person, I would say, you can't try hard enough to get rid of your sin. You must just go ahead and be crucified. You have to die. You have to be willing to give up your life and enter into Jesus. Now, this is so hard for us as Americans because we Americans have a very full life. We can be busy doing something every night of the week. And if we're not busy, we have a television we can watch every night of the week. We have other things that we can do every night of the week. So, to come to Jesus is then a pleasant add-on. It's a bonus. Like going to the ice cream shop. I don't go to the ice cream shop every day. If I did, I'd be humongous. But I love ice cream. No. To understand... Human flesh cannot save human flesh. There's only one way, and that's to take up my cross and follow Jesus. Nicodemus does not understand, and frankly, he walks away from Jesus and is not seen or heard from again until the very end when Jesus has been crucified and Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea come and lay literally their lives down to take the dead body of Jesus and give it a decent burial in Joseph's tomb. That was a very risky thing because the Romans could have killed them for participating in that process. Not only that, church history tells us that Nicodemus laid down his fortune. He was a very wealthy man. He laid down his fortune for the New Testament church. Have you ever thought about it? Over a million people came into Jerusalem for the Passover. A city that had maybe 200,000 at most in it. From all around the area. Over a million people came into Jerusalem. Many of those people at the crucifixion. 
and the preaching of Peter and the coming of the Holy Spirit, they never went home. Now, where are they going to live? They don't have jobs in Jerusalem. Besides, they're spending every day at the temple listening to the teaching of the apostles. 3,000 on the first day, and within a month, 15,000 people are Christians. Well, who's going to finance the food and the shelter? Nicodemus and others like Nicodemus who laid down their fortune. So Nicodemus finally took up his cross and followed Jesus. But he had to think about it a long time. Now, we've been taught certain ideas and certain beliefs that prevent us from ever choosing to lay our life down for Jesus. It's called good religion. I have to tell you tonight, I don't like religion. I like and love Jesus. I don't want the isms. I want the cross. I want the resurrected Lord. So tonight, I want to talk to you just about Jesus and the resurrected Lord. I want to talk about laying our lives down for him and what that means and what the blocks are to laying down our life for Jesus. There are a number of scriptures I want to just look at very quickly with you. In the seventh chapter of Matthew, verse 13, enter through the narrow gate, that is a gate that causes suffering, That's choosing to suffer for the sake of Christ. Enter through the suffering gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But small is the gate or groaning is the gate. Because it's so narrow you can't take your luggage through. You can't take your favorite things of the world through that gate. Narrow, groaning is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Today, everybody says they're saved. More than 85% of Americans say that when they die, they're going to a better place. What do they base their hope on? Not on the scripture, not on the words of Jesus. So there is a place we are called now to enter called the narrow gate. And Jesus said in verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So please hear me. I am justified by faith. Now, you've all heard that, but now let me give the content of it. The Greek word is dikasune. It means to be made righteous or made innocent. So a man who is justified or a woman who is justified has been made righteous or made innocent. That's an act of God. He's the one who does that in us. So the work of the gospel is not by works, white knuckling and struggling. The work of the gospel is something Jesus does in me. But it requires me to do what he asks me to do. And I learn what to do by devouring the scriptures, by reading the word of God. But you see, if you believe you're saved and everything is fine and all your past, present, and future sins are forgiven, why should you bother reading the scriptures? Unless you want a little devotional pickup, a little inspiration. I tell you, I don't read the scriptures for a little devotional inspiration. I read the scriptures because they are my life. 
They are the guidebook to heaven. If I don't read these, I die. Inside, I die. You see, my life is based not on my experience. It's based on what the Word says. So when the Word says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father in heaven. I want to know what the will of the Father is. I want to do what the will of the Father says I'm to do. Now, there's another angle I want to bring up. Tonight, the message was the gospel, and I wanted to make it the gospel of Jesus, but everyone said, that's too long a title, versus Gnosticism. Well, what is Gnosticism? It is an ancient collection of ideas put forth long before the time of Jesus. Plato was one of the chief proponents of the ideas of Gnosticism, but it was not a religion per se. It was a collection of ideas that people believed. It was a a way of looking at reality. Gnosticism has infiltrated the American Christian church with the ideas to such a degree that it has robbed the American church of its power to change the world. So let's identify what some of these ideas are. There are two primary ideas in Gnosticism. And by the way, there are those who call themselves Christian Gnostics. There is no such thing. A Gnostic is a pagan. The ideas of Gnosticism are in direct opposition to the gospel. Now, I want to share this basic information and where it came from. It came directly then into the church through Augustine. And Augustine dabbled in a number of different pagan beliefs, finally going to skepticism, and then found Christ and brought with him all of the pagan ideas of the past and brought those into the Christian church. And of course, John Calvin picked up the teachings of Augustine. If you read in the Institutes, as I have, the major work of John Calvin, He quotes Augustine continually, over and over, as his mentor. There are two false premises of Gnosticism that we need to be aware of. One, a dualism of spirit and matter. In other words, a separation between flesh and spirit between body and spirit. And this went two ways. One, Gnostics were very severe, one group of them, on the body. Stiff discipline. uh, No normal marriage. Fasting. uh, Body discipline. But that was the smaller grouping. The other group of Gnostics said, no, the spirit is fine. There's nothing wrong. I am without sin. But this flesh, it can do whatever it feels like doing. And it's not a problem. The example that's often used is if I have a gold bar and I dip that gold bar down into the sewer and I draw it out, Has the gold been changed by the sewer? No, you just wash it off. And there's the brilliant gold. They said that's the spirit of man. And everything of the flesh, the sin, 
is all going to be just washed away and inconsequential. And then secondly, the Gnostics claimed a higher truth, a truth that came about through secret knowledge, a a higher truth that was basically intuitive, feelings, emotions, subjective, inward. Now, the great difference between Christianity and Gnosticism is this. Christianity is a message of redemption. Gnosticism is a message of self-discovery. And so you find in the church a strong flavor of discover what your gifts are. And it's a journey of self-discovery. That's Gnosticism. The Christian message is Jesus is your Savior and he intends to redeem you from the power of darkness and set you free. He loves you. Now here's where the problem has come for the modern church. We have skewed our understanding of sin and John Calvin was primarily responsible for this. We have skewed the meaning of sin so that everything you do is sin. When you're breathing, you're sinning. Whatever you do, you're sinning in. You, you cannot live without sin. And I challenge you, if you go somewhere and you say, at a grocery store or a Starbucks coffee house or at work or Just ask a simple question. Is it possible for anyone to live without sinning against God? Standard answer is, of course not. Nobody's perfect. Well, the word perfect has a Greek and a Hebrew meaning. The Greek meaning is a legal perfection. The Hebrew meaning is different. It means maturing, and it means relationship. It means loving. It means redemptive. So when a Greek says, are you perfect? Every dot and tittle. Almost a technological perfection. But the Hebrews are not about that. They're about relationship. They're about what God is doing. Now, let me share what the issue is here. Gnosticism has crept into the church with a skewed misunderstanding of what is sin and rebellion. And it has taught the Christian today. The flesh is always going to be the flesh. Do the best you can do, but you can never stop sinning. And it's okay because at the cross, everything was covered. You're forgiven. And when you die, you lose all your sin. It's not true. Because then death becomes your savior. Death is not my savior. Jesus is my savior. The blood is what washes me clean. So, the Gnostic belief has crept into the church until we have become so shallow, an inch deep and a mile wide, where we say, look, I'll just do the best I can do. God, you got to put up with me the way I am. I can't help myself. This is who I am. Now, let's just get about our business. Let's make a living. Let's have a lifestyle. Let's do what we need to do. That's Gnostic. It's not Christian. The whole Gnostic belief is that you are privileged. You are better than other people. Like the bumper sticker on a car I saw recently. It said, 
The only difference between you and me is that I'm forgiven. Have you seen that? The only difference between you and me is that I'm forgiven. And of course, it's a bumper sticker for pagans. That the only difference between me and a pagan is that I'm forgiven and you're not. What's well, a lie? If there's no difference between me and a pagan, I'm not saved. But Gnostic teaching says, don't worry about your flesh. Don't worry about what you're doing. Do the best you can do. That's all God can expect from you. And you're slowly going to grow. You're going to get better as time goes. All of the old teachers, the early church, the great revivalists, Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, Charles Finney, John Wesley, they all taught that when a man or woman came to Jesus, they were transformed into a new person. They were converted. Conversion means to be totally changed. To no longer be this. Instead, I'm this. I'm made whole in Jesus. I'm washed in the blood. I'm made clean in the blood. So it's not surprising that the gospel is proclaimed on the radio and the television and in the church pulpits. It's proclaimed everywhere, but it seems to have lost its power. A form of godliness with no power. Why? Because the actions do not reflect the reality that we have been saved that we have been drawn out of the darkness into the light, that we have been restored to fellowship with Jesus. And our focus and our whole desire now is to serve Jesus and to win the lost and the dying. And a great compassion fills our hearts. Weeping fills our eyes because of those precious ones who are going to go to hell if our message is not effectual in their hearts to cause them to turn and surrender to Jesus Christ. So what is the gospel of Jesus Christ? I'm going to read for you from the great apologist, the Apostle Paul. In Romans, the first chapter, Let me read the introduction to Romans, verse 5. Through him and for his name's sake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. Obedience comes out of faith. It doesn't come out of try hard. It comes out of dying, being crucified with Christ. And now the actions follow. And I begin to be filled with the Spirit of God. Then Paul says in verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm ashamed of the American gospel. Because it's not a gospel. It's not good news. It's bad news. It says you're saved, but you're still in your sin. The devil can still have his way with you. But you're supposed to be saved. So your life is filled with all of the things of the world, the cares of the world, the burdens of the world, the anxiety of the world. That's not a gospel I care to have. I want a gospel that's good news. And the gospel of Jesus is good news. Listen, because it is the power of God. The word power here in the Greek is dunamis, the same word from which we get dynamite. Explosive power. Now, there's another Greek word that that is used for power that means like an oxen 
pulling a heavy load. And so he strains against it. He strains against it. He slowly gets it to move. He struggles against it. That's not the word used here. Dunamis is used here. Dynamite. Explosive power. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the dynamite of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness, a dikasune, an innocence. You know what the word righteousness means? Innocent. That's all it means. It means you're innocent. In the gospel, an innocence from God is revealed. You realize righteousness in the old covenant came from the law. And it came by doing everything you were supposed to do according to the law. But in the new covenant, righteousness doesn't come from the law anymore. It comes from Jesus. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The ones that are made righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ live by faith in Jesus Christ. And then it turns, the Apostle Paul turns, and now for the next many verses, he's going to speak about the wrath of God Until we begin to understand God's hatred for sin and God's wrath against darkness, we will not treasure the gift of grace in making us righteous. This is not, as Bonhoeffer says, cheap grace. This is grace that costs Jesus his life. This is costly grace. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. How do you suppress the truth by your wickedness? By saying, I'm a Christian, I'm saved, and then walking in your sin. Walking in bitterness and anger. Walking in cheating and lying and stealing. Walking in gossip. Walking in hardness of heart. Walking in malice. Those are all ways we suppress the truth of God by our wickedness. Because a pagan looks at us and says, I don't see Jesus in you. So we're suppressing the truth of God by our wickedness. And he outlines clearly In the next verses, what happens in a man's life or a woman's life who suppresses the truth? And then he comes to chapter 3, verse 10. He says, all are under sin. There is no righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have altogether become worthless. This is describing the condition from which we must be saved. I don't think any of us like to think of ourselves as Romans 3 describes the natural condition of every man's heart. It's very frightening. Now there's a key word we need to use. Rebellion. What is rebellion? It is saying, I am going to have it my way. I'm going to do what I want to do, and God's just going to have to put up with me. And besides, all of my sins, past, present, and future, were forgiven, so I can rebel against God, and it's not going to have any effect on me. It's not true. What did Satan say in heaven? I'm going to set my throne up above the Most High. I will have my way. As one man said to me, I want to be the man. 
I want to make the decisions for my life. I don't want Jesus making my choices. I don't want to submit to him. I don't want to surrender to him. Why do I have to do that? It's not fair. The Gnostics would say you don't have to surrender. You don't have to submit. All you have to do is continually be searching for yourself to discover yourself, to find yourself, to improve yourself as you choose in your spirit because in the end, the flesh is going to be wiped away. Never did Jesus make any distinction between the physical world and my spirit. Jesus does not curse what he created. When he created it, he said, it is good. So God does not make that separation. He wants to redeem me body, soul, and spirit. He wants to bring me into himself totally and completely. Now, if you look at Romans, the sixth chapter, what shall we say then? Verse one, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we've been united with him like this in his death, we certainly also will be united with him in his resurrection. The gospel of Jesus comes and offers us a new life. It's a supernatural work of grace that God does in his redemption and in his love. And all of the teachings that have infiltrated us through Gnosticism that teach us that we can sin. In fact, we have to sin. The flesh is so evil and so wicked, it can never be transformed by the blood of Jesus Do you hear what they're doing? They're stomping on the blood of Jesus. They're saying the blood of Jesus can't redeem me. It can't transform me. It can't make me into a new creature. And I'm here to testify tonight. The blood of Jesus changes a man or a woman and makes them clean, washed and clean and new and perfect. Jesus doesn't make junk. So whatever it is that comes troubling us, we're simply called to die a deeper death to that thing and lay it on the altar of burnt offering and let Jesus have his way in our hearts. There is no excuse for sin. If there were an excuse for sin, it would cease to be sin. But there is no excuse. So we are called to leave our sin, to cut it off in the name of Jesus, to stop giving our members to the powers of darkness and give our members instead to the Holy Spirit to walk in righteousness before him. I want to very quickly define what sin is. Sin, according to John, the, gospel, the first epistle of John, it is called rebellion or lawlessness. Sin is, is literally when I say no to Jesus. When the Spirit of God comes to me, sin is when I say no. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to give that. I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to follow. I'm not going to do that. That's sin. Sin is lawlessness. It's important for us to understand 
and it's not easy, but it's important for us to understand that the power of God can accomplish anything in a man or woman's heart to be made whole, to be washed, to be made clean. So for me, the gospel is good news. It's not setting up another legalistic standard. It's instead saying, look, my son, my daughter, will you come and will you follow me? Will you renounce your wicked ways? Will you leave your sinful desires? Will you turn aside from those? And will you let me make you whole? Will you let me save you and redeem you? The church is to be a people of saints, warriors for Jesus Christ. People who then are baptized in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. That's why a Holy Spirit revival. Because right now, we're basically powerless to witness to the lost and have them have a fire ignited in their heart because of the mixed-up theology with Gnosticism that many of us have struggled with through the years. We've got to come and take the Scriptures for what they literally say and begin to operate according to what they say to us. To read them, to meditate upon them, to pray, to fast, to wait on God, to give us understanding I can't think of anything more exciting than the gospel of Jesus Christ. He brings us freedom. He breaks every bondage. And as we're willing to cut off the sin and stop making excuses for it and stop pretending that it's all right and enter into Jesus, he will meet us And he will change us. And he will make us to look like him. Lord Jesus, the great desire of my heart is to be like you. To be filled with your spirit. To be baptized in your spirit. The great desire of my heart, Jesus, is that the lost should be saved. That every man and every woman would come out of this dream world of the Christian church and truly enter into righteousness and be made innocent by your blood, transformed and new. Lord, thank you. We bless your holy name. Amen. Like the woman at the well I was seeking For things That could not satisfy And then I heard my Savior speaking Draw from my way That never shall run dry
Thank you so much for joining us. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress, brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel in Woodbridge, Virginia. Come join us at nationalprayerchapel.com or our sister website, revivalnow.church. God bless you. We love you. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy with great joy now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ.